We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, and we're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with the goal of discovering who Jesus really was, what he really taught, and what he really did. It's our goal to know him and his word for ourselves firsthand. And we've spent the last five weeks studying through what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. I joked with my wife that our our series through the life of Jesus is actually happening in real time. So we should finish his three-year ministry in in about three years. It's a very careful, calculated move. And last week we heard a startling teaching from Jesus that encouraged us to judge each other within the church with love and without hypocrisy. The goal being that we love each other enough to not allow sin to devastate each other's lives. Loving each other enough to say, you are headed for disaster and I love you too much not to warn you. And this week, Jesus is gonna continue with the theme of judging others in a godly way within the church, but he's gonna shift the focus to ministry leaders, to pastors, Bible teachers, prophets, And so I wanted to say to start off with, if you're still struggling with the idea of judging others within the church, it may be helpful to understand that without a measure of judgment constantly taking place, the church is ripe for corruption. Ripe for corruption. I find it ironic that the same people who are so quick to say nobody should judge each other, it's nobody's place to judge each other, are generally the same people who love to disparage all the weird stuff that has happened in church history. They're usually the same people who love to say, well, you know, the church has done a lot of bad things in history. You've got the Crusades, you've got the Inquisition. And the reason I find that so ironic is because the only way those things have ever been able to happen in church history is because people were not judging each other in a godly way. Because nobody was holding anybody else accountable according to the standards of the Word of God. And in the absence of judgment, godly judgment and discernment, corruption will thrive and the periods in history where there has been great corruption in the church are the periods in history where judgment has not happened within the church and the only way to get away with that as we're going to find out in today's study is to condition people to never judge anyone and to stay away from the one thing that empowers us to judge with godly wisdom and that's the word of god but let's dismiss this logical fallacy that there is no need for judgment in the church I would lovingly suggest that that viewpoint is simply ignorant of the fact that we are human beings and the church is made up of people. And as long as we're people, we're always going to need accountability because one of us is always going to be going crazy. That's just the truth. We all need a slap upside the head every now and then. I won't make you say amen, but you know you should be. So (laughs) notice where we're coming from, where we ended last week. Jesus has just said in the previous verse, in Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus has just said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So keeping that in mind, that the way that leads to life is narrow and the way that leads to destruction is wide and easy. Keeping that in mind, Jesus is saying, let me warn you about some people who will try and move you from the narrow road to the broad way. And then he goes on in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves that's a warning jesus is not mincing words he's not mincing words and we need to spend some serious time unpacking this and the first question would seem to be what is a false prophet I've never seen anybody put that on their business card. If you go to a church's website and you look at the staff page or the art team page, nobody ever takes the title false prophet. Yeah, he's our in-house false prophet. Nobody does that. So what is a false prophet? Write this down for your first fill-in. A false prophet is someone who claims to be speaking on God's behalf, but is not. A false prophet is someone who claims to be speaking on God's behalf, but is not. The prophet Jeremiah received a real word from the Lord about the false prophets who dotted the landscape in Israel during his day. And he said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. Prophesy would be in quotations, most likely. They make you worthless. And then this is on your outline. You might want to underline this. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. 
False prophets have bought into the lie that what's in their heart comes from the mouth of God. They've bought into the lie that what's in their heart comes straight from the mouth of God. They don't confirm it with his word because they've started to believe that their own thoughts are equal with God. They've got such confidence in themselves that they don't feel the need to confirm anything with the word of God. They just say, oh, well, I thought it. It must be from God. If you know yourself, you know that's crazy talk, right? Because I think some crazy things every now and then that are not from the Lord. The prophet Ezekiel wrote about the effect of false prophets on Israel during a corrupt season of her history, and he said, her prophets plastered them, the people, with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. Church, I I hope that we all understand it is a serious, serious thing to say Thus says the Lord God. That is a serious, serious thing to say. When you name drop God and claim that what you are about to say next comes directly from Him and you're not reading straight out of the Bible, you better be 110% sure. I was raised Pentecostal, so when you're raised Pentecostal, you, you always have the guy in your church who has the gift of prophesying in King James English, because that's the way God speaks, right? So it always begins with, thus saith the Lord. And then they talk in King James English, you know, yea, my little children, though thou art much afraid, you know, and you're thinking, I'm pretty sure God has like modernized his language to compensate for time, but, but all, right, all right, you know, sure, that's, that's great. But when somebody now says, thus says the Lord, there's something in me, haven't, been alive in the church for a few decades now that makes me want to interrupt and say, are you sure? Are you sure? Thus saith the Lord, because you just name dropped God. So this better not be a nice thought that you're having. This better not be the pizza you had last night. This better not be the emotion of the moment. You better know because you just name dropped God. And that is a big, big deal. We don't take his name lightly, and that's why here at our church, we we do our best to stick as close to the text as possible when we teach and study his word. When I tell you God is saying this, when I say thus says the Lord, I want you to be sure I'm telling the truth because you can see it in his word for yourself. That's why we teach that way. False prophets are not afraid to name drop God in order to push their own ideas, even when they contradict the word of God. So to me, the next logical question about a false prophet is, why does anyone listen to him? Why would anyone listen to a false prophet? In 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul warns his protege, Timothy, about the environment that makes a society or a church ripe for false prophets. He says, this is, this is the vibe in a culture, in a society, in a church that is ripe for false prophecy. He says, it's on your outline, for the time will come when they, the people, will not endure sound doctrine. They won't put up with it. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul says the time is going to come when most people won't put up with the truth. They won't stand for it. They won't tolerate the truth. Instead of desiring truth, they're going to look for teachers who will say what they want to hear. Things that affirm their desire to live for themselves. And when they do that, they will become deaf to the truth and they will buy in wholeheartedly to lies, fables. You know, we live in an age where the overwhelming majority of people are not interested in the truth about God. The main criteria is not the truth. We're not interested in the truth. What most people want is someone to be a mirror of their own vision and values that they already hold. They say, man, I'm, I'm coming to you as a teacher, but what I really want is I just want you to reflect back to me what I've already decided I want. I want affirmation. They want teachers who will pat them on the back and encourage them, man, just keep walking down your own spiritual path. Good for you. You're doing great. You're doing awesome. I love this teacher. Yeah, because they didn't teach you anything. 
They just told you what you're doing is great. Just keep going the way you're going. Paul says when you've got an environment like that, when you look around you and you see that that is the state of the world that you're in, he says you need to know it is an environment that is ripe for false prophets to rise to prominence. Write this down. People listen to false teachers because they teach what people want to hear. They teach what people want to hear. It's just that simple. I was born evil and I'm not capable of being good enough on my own. I don't really want to hear that. Let's change that to you were born good with infinite potential. You're the most amazing person in the world and you were created for greatness on this earth. You just need to shine like the star that you are. Heck, I like hearing that. I like hearing that. My, my carnal, selfish self, the Bible calls it my flesh, sure likes hearing that a lot more than your purpose in life is to glorify God. That may mean being incredibly successful at some things. It may mean laying down your life and literally dying for the sake and cause of Christ. But your greatest goal in living is to bring glory to Him. Uh, I like what the other guy says more. I like the thing where I'm made for, for, for greatness here on the earth and I'm amazing and incredible and super and good. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. It's not surprising that people listen to false prophets. They simply say what people want to hear. This is just my opinion. I'm saying this because I want you to know this isn't in the Bible. This is just my opinion from what I've observed in the world of church. I believe that most false prophets have no idea that they are false prophets. I believe they have no idea. When they look in the mirror, they don't see a wolf. They see a sheep. People become wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets, when they start teaching what they wish was true, what they think should be true, instead of what the Word of God says is true. The most recent and spectacular example of this is, is a guy named Rob Bell. Uh, Rob Bell came onto the ministry scene about 10 years ago very dramatically, very dramatically. He was and is very gifted, very charismatic, a genuinely great communicator, an artist, a philosopher with a gift for creative teaching. And he wrote a book called Velvet Elvis that really blew up in the Christian world and was read and praised by many Christians, including myself at the time, to my embarrassment now. And he released a series of short teaching videos that were called NUMA, and they were really well done, creatively well done, and shown in many, many churches. And his own church, uh, Mars Hill, not Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill in Seattle, this is a, a different, totally different church, Mars Hill in Michigan, Rob Bell's church blew up to about 10,000 people. Somewhere along the way, though, something happened. And if you go back and read Velvet Elvis now, you can sort of read and see the seeds of what Rob Bell would come to later believe, that the Bible is not a reliable source of God's truth. And the thing is, once you begin to believe that, once you start going down that road, you've already elevated yourself above the Word of God because if you don't believe the Bible is a reliable source of truth, well, then who determines what truth is? You do. And once you're on that road... You are in serious, serious trouble. A couple of years passed, and Rob Bell got into serious trouble. Rob Bell loves people. I really believe that. He loves, loves people. Many false prophets do. And so he struggled with the idea of anybody going to hell under any circumstances. And his solution to that problem was to change the truth of what the Word of God says, to correct it. And so he wrote a, a best-selling book called Love Wins. And what Love Wins does is it essentially dismisses everything the Bible says about hell being a real place where people will spend eternity. And he simply changes theology so that it fits into how he would like things to be. It's so completely against what the Bible teaches. You had to think, how, how did he get there? How did that happen? Very simply, he refused to honor God's word above himself as the authority of truth. He didn't have anybody around him who judged and corrected him in love. And he began to put his own thoughts on par with God's thoughts. And the result is he deceived himself. Nobody came along and fooled him. He deceived himself into believing that this was true. He became a false prophet leading thousands astray. And the people he led astray were the people who would love to believe the exact same thing he's writing. Why was that book a bestseller? Because it's what people want to hear. It's what people want to hear. The thesis of the book is doesn't doesn't matter how you live in this life, you'll have a chance to correct it in the next life and redeem yourself and, and earn your way into heaven by being good. Man, people want to hear that. 
And so they ate it up. You remember what Jeremiah said? They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. Not from the mouth of the Lord. If it's a lie, good intentions do not make it the truth. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Jesus wants us to understand that we cannot discern false prophets from their outward appearance. Write this down. We cannot discern false prophets from their outward appearance. They look like sheep. They look like sheep. They look good and harmless from the outside. False prophets don't walk around dressed in black, constantly rubbing their hands together in a scheming manner, you know, and, and, and you're suspicious because every time you walk up on them, they're always going, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, can I pray for you? That's, it's not what they do, you know. It's not like, how did you know he was a false prophet? Well, there was that time I walked in on him sacrificing a cat to Satan. That's when I started thinking, you know, Something might be a little bit off here. Satan is using false prophets as covert agents for his agenda. They're coming in disguise. Satan wants to trick us into believing they're friendly, nice people who are well-liked. So they must be legit. Jesus says you can't judge them from their outward appearance. But they're such a nice guy. That's not how you know. But they dress so well. That's not how you know. They have such white teeth. That's not how you know. It's not how you know. Jesus himself said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. What's the implication of that? Everybody loved the false prophets because they were saying what people wanted to hear. False prophets are often well-liked. In fact, they're often beloved by people. That's why everybody loves Oprah, right? Everybody loves Oprah. Go to Starbucks and you can get an Oprah chai latte tea, which no self-respecting man should ever order a beverage with the name Oprah in it. Just order it without using her name, okay? But I'll smack you upside the head if I see you in Starbucks ordering an Oprah chai latte tea. Because I love you, okay? (laughs) Jesus said, if everybody loves everything you're teaching, if nobody is ever offended by anything you teach, It's a pretty safe bet that you're not teaching the truth. It's a pretty safe bet. Our men's group was just reading yesterday morning in Galatians 5 where the Apostle Paul calls the cross and the gospel offensive to people. He says it's offensive. When I preach the cross, it's offensive to people. So if you can't spot a false prophet by their outward appearance, if a false prophet can be well-liked, how can you identify a false prophet? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 16. He says, you will know them by their fruits. You might want to underline fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, underline fruits, you will know them. Jesus likens every person, every ministry leader to a tree that produces fruit. And he tells us that the fruit reveals what's going on inside the tree. The fruit reveals whether what's going on inside the tree is healthy or sick and dying. Jesus doesn't tell us to inspect the tree because we can't discern from the outward appearance. Jesus tells us to inspect the fruit. Write this down. Inspect the fruit, the byproduct of the tree. He says, check out the fruit. Check out what's coming out of the life of this person because the fruit does not lie. And if you're wondering what the fruit is of a follower of Jesus, the Bible actually tells us that the fruit produced in the life of the person who's filled with the Holy Spirit is love. And then it characterizes love as joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When people begin to idolize a ministry leader, they might not even realize they're doing it. When they begin to believe that that person is is above sin or above certain sins, that ministry leader's sins simply get dismissed with comments like, "Hey, hey, so what if he's got a bit of a temper? It's just him being him. It's just her being her. It's just a quirk. They are so anointed. We've all got quirks, man. We've all got quirks. And I've seen this again and again in churches. Leaders' sins 
are dismissed as quirks because he's begun to be idolized by people, begun to take the position of being above certain sins. It's just not an issue for me. It'll never be an issue for me. It'll never be an issue for him. It's pastor, fill in the blank. Oh, it's never, never going to be a problem. I know churches right now, all over the world, where this is happening. When I see that, I see danger signs going off everywhere because it tells me that intentionally or not, that leader has created an environment, they've created a culture in their church, in their ministry, where they are above being judged by the standards of the word of God, even in the area of sin. And the reason I point this out is because it's so important to recognize a dangerous environment because a dangerous environment precedes a dangerous event. And many of you, you might know of churches right now where you say, I see that environment, but the leader's a great guy. I'm not saying that he's doing something disastrous right now. What I am saying is when there's the environment for that to happen, man, sure is a lot easier for that to happen. Environment is so important. Just to give you an example, if, if you had uh, a board, let's just say a board of five men who made a decision about a government contract that was worth $2 billion, and you said, you know, there's those five men, and I said, well, are, is anybody monitoring their personal finances? And you said, no, we don't need to do that. They're trustworthy men. Let me tell you what you have. You have an environment that is ripe for corruption because somebody is going to bribe one of those men. It's going to happen. They're going to bribe them to get the contract because a million-dollar bribe is nothing in the scheme of $2 million. And if you don't have an environment where there is accountability there, where somebody is checking, corruption is going to happen nine times out of ten. We know it. I mean, we, we live in a country that has a government. If you have a government, you know that this sort of thing goes on all the time. So when you create an environment in a ministry or a church where people recognize sin in a leader but they dismiss it as a quirk because everybody says there's no way he could have a sin issue. It's pastor, fill in the blank. Man, be careful because you've created the environment for something disastrous to happen later on and you won't have anyone to blame except yourself and the other people of the church because God will hold you responsible for not holding them responsible to be accountable to his word. Inspect the fruit In the case of a ministry leader, it's also helpful to remember that the Bible tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things they say, and I was thinking about this, and the things they don't say reveal what's going on in the heart. Sometimes they say something and it's like, man, that was really harsh and that was really angry. But I'm sure their heart is a gentle, loving place. Mm, Probably not, probably not. Equally important, the things they don't say. I've started to realize this more and more. If out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, and you have ministry leaders or church leaders or pastors who never seem to get around to talking about Jesus or the gospel, what does that say about the overflow of their heart? What they don't say says as much about what's going on in their heart as what they do say. Who's the star of their message? Them? Are you the star of the message? You the listener? Or is Jesus and his word the star of their ministry? Write this down. Jesus doesn't tell us to inspect the quantity of the fruit, but rather its quality. He doesn't tell us to inspect the quantity of the fruit, but rather its quality. You know, there's a line of thinking in many believers and in many churches today that if a ton of people show up for anything related to church or ministry, then it must mean God is in it. God is blessing it. God approves of it. God is doing something. I was in youth ministry for several years. I was a youth pastor for three years. And you see this in youth ministry more than anywhere else. Everyone is excited when there are tons of kids at a youth ministry event. Here's the thing that I learned. You can rent an elephant, okay? Put it in the middle of a room, and a few hundred people will show up to take a selfie with it if you let them do it for free. That does not mean that a profound move of God just took place through the elephant, okay? Millions of people have had mullets. God was not in that, okay? He was not in that. This is crucial, 
crucial to understand. If your goal is simply to get a ton of people, then man, you know what? The Bible actually tells you how to do that. It tells you how to get a bunch of people. Remember, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from truth and be turned aside to fables. Just use that as your vision statement, and you're on your way. If you want to have a ton of people, you need to become a false prophet. All you need to do is tell people what they want to hear, and you'll have a ton of people. Having a bunch of people doesn't mean God's in what you're doing. That's why Jesus said, hey, pay attention to the quality of the fruit, not the quantity. Now, am I saying that something shady is going on in every church that has a bunch of people? No, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Um, what I am saying is that for our church and every other church, our prayer is that we would have a ton of people who are there for the truth and the truth of the gospel and the truth of what Jesus has done for them. But we don't just want a bunch of people We want a bunch of people who are passionately pursuing Jesus Christ and his truth and his word. That's what we want. We want quality and quantity. But we don't want quantity without quality. It's meaningless. Is that ministry, is that church, or is that ministry leader producing people who are becoming more and more like Jesus? Are they producing people who love God's word and know God's word? Are they producing people who live focused on eternity rather than this life? Are they producing people who live as disciples of Jesus Christ? So get this. Jesus tells you to judge what you're being taught in church. He tells you to judge it. He tells you to pay attention to the fruit of your ministry leaders. He says, you do that. Don't appoint a committee and expect them to handle that. He says, you you do it. You pray for your leaders. You discern. You open the word and you investigate for yourself. Jesus in the early church didn't create an accountability board in every congregation whose job it was to monitor the teachings of the church. Jesus' system of accountability was the church itself, the people of the church. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas visit and plant a church in the city of Berea. Let me just read it to you from Acts 17. It says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. And also, not a few of the Greeks, prominent women, as well as men. When the Bereans heard teaching from anyone, they would go home, they would open the word, they would search the scriptures for themselves to find out whether or not what they had just been taught was true. And the Bible commends them for it. The Bible doesn't say, you suspicious people. It commends them. The Apostle Paul, I mean, if anybody outside of Jesus Christ had the right to have an attitude about being verified, it would be the Apostle Paul. He could have said, how dare you? I'm the Apostle Paul. Don't insult me by acting as though my teaching needs biblical verification. I'm Paul. But Paul doesn't have that reaction. Instead, Paul is delighted and jubilant that they honor God's word above him. He's thrilled by that. And because of that, the Bible calls the Bereans noble-minded. Noble-minded. Please understand this. This is the Apostle Paul teaching, okay? This is the Apostle Paul. If there is a pastor, a minister, a leader in your life that you think, I don't need to verify what they're saying, they are not as good as Paul was, okay? They're just not. And these guys verified Paul. So they knew what they were getting was the truth. And I'm not planning on teaching anything heretical or blasphemous. I'm not planning on it. You'll be glad to know that. But if I did, God's plan for dealing with it is you. His plan is you. Because you can't ask me, like, do you have an accountability partner? As though I'm going to get on the phone and tell my accountability partner, yeah, you know, I taught something blasphemous this week just, just for fun to see what happens. Wait a minute, Jeff, you shouldn't do that. Oh, my goodness, you're right. God's plan is you. His plan is that if I did that, you would show me my error using the word of God. Using the word of God. And the reason I say that is because you can't just come up and be like, I don't like the way you said this. Mm, too bad. But if you say, look, Jeff, this is what the word of God says. You taught the complete opposite of this. I think this is a problem. Then we've got an issue. 
And if I refused to repent in God's plan, you would leave the church. And when everyone leaves the church because they know how to discern the truth using the word of God, it becomes very difficult for a false prophet to keep believers in this church. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul wrote, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Paul said, Don't be deceived by teachers and preachers just because they sound smart, just because they can philosophize a point with eloquence. Discern between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. You have to know the difference. The Apostle John wrote this. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. John says, listen, legit ministers of the gospel will teach and proclaim Jesus as God, the Son of God who came in flesh on the earth and died for our sins. So when you find a ministry that never seems to talk about Jesus by name as being God who died for our sins, watch out. Watch out. They're not just a different flavor of preacher, okay? They're not just a fun, crazy cousin in the family of Christ. John says they're operating in the spirit of the Antichrist. That's pretty serious, right? When that's what's going on, you don't say, hey, you know, yeah, I've got this friend who's in this church where, you know, the pastor's operating in the spirit of the Antichrist, but we love him. We love him. That's not the time for that. That's misplaced grace. That is the time for godly judgment. It's the time for godly judgment. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Here we see Paul's heart again saying, test even what you hear from me against the word of God. Test it. And then what an interesting phrase. Paul says that even if we hear any other gospel from an angel from heaven, it's a lie. And isn't it interesting that over hundreds and hundreds of years later, several major world religions would be founded on the belief that an angel from heaven had delivered a new revelation, a new gospel to a special person. How did those religions get off the ground? People didn't search the scriptures. People didn't know what the word of God said. And so they couldn't discern the truth from a lie. They couldn't discern. So, if you were a false prophet, what's the one thing you would want to keep away from people in order to prevent them from discerning that you are a false prophet? What's the one thing you would want to keep away from them? The Word of God. The Word of God. So when you find yourself in a church where you don't even need to pull out your Bible, where you go, I forgot to bring my Bible. Oh, it doesn't really matter because it's not like we use them here where you only bring it for show, where the pastor shares a random verse and then fills the hour with his own thoughts, opinions, and heartwarming stories. Be careful, because that is exactly how I would run a church if I were a false prophet. That's how I'd do it. I don't need to name names because you'll know who I'm talking about, but the biggest pastor in the world right now, at the beginning of every message, has you pull out your Bible, hold it in the air, and make a big deal about it. And you all sort of say this chant together about how great the Bible is. And then he never uses it for the rest of his message. So you literally bring it to church. I brought my Bible. Good, good, good. We're a Bible church. We're a Bible church. Okay, now put that away. You're not going to need that for the rest of the message. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. People are being deceived because they're being kept out of the word of God. When you don't know what the truth is, you've made yourself a target and you've only got yourself to blame. Jesus says, I've given you everything you need to be able to discern the truth. I've given it to you. You've just got to decide whether or not you want to use it. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, now I urge you, brethren, speaking of judging, 
Note those who cause divisions and offenses. Another translation says, mark those who cause divisions and offenses. So sometimes false prophets won't have access to the pulpit in a church. If somebody showed up next week and said, I'd like to preach next Sunday, that's not going to happen. Sometimes they don't have access, so they need to work amongst the congregation. Paul says they're going to cause division in your church, and they're going to stir up people to be offended. So in our church, it would be like, you know, I just, uh, just feel like Jeff, you know, sort of uh, hammers the judging thing just a little bit too hard, a little bit too much. I, I don't know that that's really what Jesus would want. Just sowing these seeds of division, undermining the word of God subtly. Paul says, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. They're going to teach a different theology to what the Bible says. Paul goes on and says, For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. So get this, they're not your brother in Christ. They're not your sister in Christ to be given grace, okay? They're not playing for the same team, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Here's how I see it happen in church. I've seen this happen. Smooth words and flattering speech, they come to you and they go, hey, you know, you're a person who has really good discernment. I've noticed you have the gift of wisdom and you're really good at understanding the truth. Does it seem to you like the church is just, you know, sticking a, a little too hard to maybe Bible stuff that's just really over people's heads? You know, what do you think? Smooth words, flattering speech, flatter your ego, suck you in, plant seeds of division, strife within the church. I've seen it happen again and again and again. They're not just different. They're not just another flavor. They're not just from another theological camp. Paul says they do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to mark them to make sure that everybody in the church knows who they are and what they're doing. When they're confronted by the church leadership, they say, no, I'm just going to keep doing this because I think you know, somebody needs to, to do something about this. Paul would say, okay, you should stand up in front of the church and say, hey, just so everybody knows, Steve is causing division in the church. He's trying to appeal to your guys' egos. He doesn't have any issue using the word of God. He's just spreading false rumors and trying to cause division in our church. Steve, that's how Paul says to deal with it. Here's what I know. That puts an end to the gossip in the church, right? Puts an end to it. Is it hardcore? You bet. But Jesus is serious. He is serious about unity in his church. If you've got all kinds of personal issues, you are welcome in the church, and you're in really good company. If you want to stir up division and strife in the church, get out. Get out. There's no room for that. There's no grace for that. You know, the Western church has distorted the idea of grace so much that we've forgotten that the Bible tells us over and over again to test what we hear teachers and prophets say against the word of God. Because of this, wolves are being allowed to run wild in the modern church. So let me ask you something. If if you're a farmer, a shepherd who has sheep, and there's a wolf among your flock who's trying to kill your sheep, are you going to try and rehabilitate that wolf? No, you're going to shoot the wolf. You're not going to sit down and have a heart-to-heart with the wolf. I've noticed you feeding on the flesh of my sheep, and I just think you're better than that. You're not going to say, who am I to judge if that's a wolf? I mean, it could be a sheep. You shoot the wolf. A false prophet, a wolf in your church, is not someone who is dealing with their own sin and needs grace and encouragement and mercy. They're on a mission to divide and destroy the church of Jesus Christ, whether they realize it or not. And the Apostle Paul says, mark them. Make sure everybody knows who they are. Make sure everybody knows what they're doing. Kick them out of your congregation. You can pray for them to repent, but their repentance needs to happen outside the church. When they repent, then they can come back. The reason for that is because we forget that we're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war. So imagine that Canada is at war and we catch a spy in our country. Now imagine the government saying, you know, if we just throw this guy in prison, 
if we treat him like a hostile enemy combatant, he's going to act like a hostile enemy combatant. What we need to do is we need to integrate him into our society. We need to love on him, and then I'm sure he'll see the light. So we're going to let him go and just go about our business, and uh, I'm sure in time he'll learn to love how great Canada is. You would be an idiot if you subscribe to that line of thinking. That man is on a mission to undermine your country in a time of war, and you need to get him out. You need to not give him access to your most vulnerable, sensitive areas. And in the church, we always have vulnerable people. We have new believers. There are people who don't know their Bibles like they should. There are people who are easily tempted by gossip and hearsay. We have vulnerabilities And as the shepherd of the flock, part of my job is to protect this flock. You can be as messed up as all get out, and you are welcome here. But if you start trying to mess with other people in this congregation, if you start trying to cause division and doubt and fear and undermine the word of God, it's my job, according to the word of Jesus, to hit you upside the head with my shepherd's staff and get you the heck out of our church. That's my job. Your job as the congregation is to know your Bible so that when the wolf shows up in sheep's clothing, you aren't the one saying, why is Jeff being so mean to that sweet little old sheep? Why would he do that? Why would he do that to that person? Where's the mercy? Every time a wolf needs to be shot in a church, there are always people with no discernment who lament the cold-heartedness of the pastor who dealt with it. He just shot a sheep. Can you believe that guy? It's your job to be able to discern as well and discern the truth using the word of God. And now one of the most uncomfortable portions of scripture in the entire Bible. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, underline the word does, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. We know that what we do doesn't save us. But Jesus wants us to know that those who belong to him will do what he asks them to do. The word Lord literally means master. So if you're claiming that Jesus is your Lord, if you're calling him Lord, then you are claiming that he is your master. He is in charge of you. Jesus tells us that there are those who call him Lord but still live their lives as their own master. I heard someone once say, It's an oxymoron to say no, Lord. It's an oxymoron to say no, Lord, because you can't call him Lord and say no to him in the same breath. If he's your Lord, then he's in charge of you. Someone once came to Jesus and said to him, Behold, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. The greatest danger for those of us who love God's word and study God's word and treasure his word is falling into the trap of thinking that because we know something, we must be doing it. Did you catch that? The greatest danger for those of us who love God's word and study it is falling into the trap of thinking that because we know something, we must be doing it. Not so. That's why James told us, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But Jeff, I filled in all the blanks on the outline. It doesn't matter. I nodded my head. I was the guy who said amen when you made that point. Doesn't matter. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. You know, I wouldn't be a good pastor today if I didn't ask you to consider how our heavenly father would respond right now. If you said, excuse me, Lord, would he say, yes, my son? Yes, my daughter? Or would he say, Lord? Lord? Are you kidding me? I'm not your Lord. There's only room for one Lord in your life, and you're it. Are you a doer of the word, a member of Jesus' family, or are you simply a hearer of the word? 
deceiving yourself into thinking that he is your Lord. This verse from Luke's gospel always impacts me. Jesus says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? He's like, you call me Lord, you you don't even do what I ask you to do. Don't call me Lord. Verse 22, he goes on and says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, there it is again, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? There's a few things here that might help us understand how these things could have happened if these people are not true believers. Firstly, Jesus is talking about false prophets. So the prophesying that they're doing was most likely what Jeremiah described, a vision of their own heart. The casting out of demons was unauthentic. And we don't know the specifics of how this works, but the Bible makes it clear that these guys didn't really do that or it didn't happen by the power of God. It was demons being replaced with other demons in all likelihood. And it's nothing new in the Bible for non-believers to do what the Bible calls wonders. That's nothing new. You might remember the magicians in Pharaoh's court where Moses goes before Pharaoh. He casts down his staff. It turns into a snake. They do the same thing. And we gloss over that. They do the same thing. They throw down their sticks and they turn into snakes by the power of Satan. And then awesomely, you know, Moses' snake eats their snakes, which is pretty cool. Deal with that. I love that. That's awesome. And you also have Simon, he's a sorcerer, the Bible calls him, from Samaria in Acts 8, who was known by everyone for his powerful magic. His powerful magic. When Jesus spoke about the last days, he said this in Mark 13, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. If you know what the book of Revelation says, it says that the person that we know as the Antichrist is going to suffer a fatal wound and will actually return from the dead, setting him up to be worshipped as God on the earth. It's nothing new for people who aren't believers to be able to do wonders by the power of Satan. Jesus says, but don't worry, I've laid it all out for you. I've told you how to discern. I've given you everything you need. Judge them by their fruit. Don't get distracted by their outward appearance. Don't get distracted by their popularity or even their signs and wonders. Judge their fruit. In his word, Jesus has given us everything we need to spot false prophets. Verse 23, Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You might want to underline the word never. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now that's heavy. And I think we'd all agree that this is serious because this is salvation we're talking about. This is eternity in heaven or hell that we're talking about. And I want to point out to you that Jesus doesn't say, I knew you for a while, then you fell away. Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. These people never accepted Jesus as their Lord. Jesus' disciples are people who follow him. That means giving up your own agenda for your life and following him. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. You know, in Israel, there is a rainy season and there's a dry season. And during the dry season, all the ground looks pretty much the same. The sand hardens and becomes rock solid. And the idea here is not an idiot. When I heard this as as a kid, I would always think, man, the guy who built on the sand is so stupid. You know, you sort of get the picture of there's like a beach and there's one guy building on this giant rock at one end of the beach and the other guy's like, I'm going to build on the sand in the beach. Oh, a wave came. That's not what's going on. What it's describing here is a guy who builds his home in Israel during the dry season on a piece of un proven, untested land. And it looks rock solid. Then the rainy season comes and suddenly this seemingly rock solid ground is revealed to be sand. And the house is catastrophically destroyed. What sticks out to me in this analogy is that the rain is coming. The rain is coming. It's not coming as a one-time event. It's seasonal rain. 
And so too in life, you, you can be sure that the rain is coming. The storm is coming. Not once, unfortunately. Seasonally. On a regular basis. You can count on it. And it is so gracious of God to allow these storms into our lives because they reveal what we have built our lives upon. They reveal what we've built our lives upon. Our foundation is exposed as being firm and solid. Jesus Christ or shifting sand, which is everything else. How good is God to reveal to us the foundation we've built upon while we still have time to rebuild if necessary. How gracious is God to do that for us? And we need those regular checkups. We need those seasons of testing in our life to remind us you have built on the rock or to expose the fact that we have built on something less. Jesus said it plainly, if you hear my words and obey them, you're wise. If you hear my words and disregard them, you are a fool. I love that Jesus always gives it to us straight. He tells us how it is and how it's going to be. He prepares us for eternity. Verse 28, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In this back half of Matthew 7, Jesus works so hard to make sure that we understand there is a line that we must cross in order to belong to him he must be our lord he must be our lord this convicted me this week on a cathedral wall in lubeck germany is an inscription that says this it says you call me master and obey me not you call me light and see me not you call me the way and walk me not you call me life and live me not You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. He has to be our Lord. He has to be our Lord. So today the greatest question is, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Lord and Savior is a package deal. You can't get the Savior without the Lord part. It's a package deal. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want to ask you to commit to search the Scriptures in order not to be deceived. I love you and I love Jesus and I'm doing my best to cling to the truth, but my greatest joy would be to lead a church where everyone searches the scriptures for themselves, knows the word for themselves, because it means that between our gathering together, as your pastor, I can know that you'll be safe. You know how to fend for yourself spiritually. You're not open to deception. And then commit to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Ask yourself, Lord, Lord, am I hearing things? Am I knowing things but not doing them? And even the lordship part, you know it slips sometimes. We believe that once you belong to God, you are his forever. But sometimes, man, our flesh, our self, we just want to take back that Lord title and start running things all over again. This is a great time just to say, Holy Spirit, I want you to rule every area of my life. I want you to be Lord in every area of my life. Just illuminate, shine a light on anything in my life where I'm Lord and you're not so that I can give it back to you. Would you spend a moment just allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you, 